Okay, inside your bulletin, there's more announcements. You can see them online. There's three I want to call attention to. Uh, we have three Christian education classes going on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday nights here. For those of you that are interested, on Monday night, you have Rob Schmidt. You can read it on Wednesday night, Judy Deal, First Peter. And then on Tuesday nights, I'm teaching uh, Life of Christ. Rob's and Judy started last week, but you're still welcome to join. And um, mine is on Tuesday night. It starts this week. So if you go online, you can uh, fill out the form telling us you're interested and we'll contact you. For those of you that uh, have already been filling out forms, let me just apologize, okay? Um, we're getting used to our new website. We didn't actually know how to access everything. So when we finally accessed everything, there's a list of like 30 of you that filled out forms. So I'm just going to apologize. Uh, and from here on out, we'll do a much better job of being current. So uh, thanks for filling out the form. So let us know if you want to do that. Um, good. That's good. I'm going to read to you a devotion from John Don. This was a, a paraphrase by Philip Yancey. John Don lived in the 17th century. He was in London. He got assigned a very young uh, dean to St. Paul's Cathedral in London during the Great Plague. So imagine coming as, as either your first time as a pastor or you're relatively new. And the Great Plague was one of those pandemics that just devastated the world. At its peak, they were losing a thousand people every single day in London alone, and so every time they, every time somebody died, they'd ring the church bells. So you can imagine what that was like. And so um, for this young, this young dean trying to figure it out, and so they didn't have the science that we have today to make sense of it, uh, and so um, it superstition runs in all directions. They're wondering, for instance, there was a bright comet in the sky. Is that something predicting the end of the world? Did their enemies figure out a way to bring disease into London? That sort of thing. Surely it must be the poor's fault because the rich had already left the city as soon as first warning, and so it must be the poor people's fault, right? All these rumors are spreading around, and they're all going to St. Paul's to this young dean and saying, what do we do with this? Well, how do we handle this? And so he's trying to teach them, and in the middle of that, he gets it, okay? And so... Uh, he didn't actually die from it, but he didn't know that he wasn't going to die. And so he wrote these devotions for his flock to help them think through what's happening. Okay. Now, as I read this, I want you to notice the parallels with um, the New Testament and Ecclesiastes. One of the things I want to do today is begin to show you how Ecclesiastes has informed and shaped the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. Okay. So this is one of his devotions. He wasn't allowed to read and study anymore. He was confined to bed, but he could write. So he started writing these devotions for his flock. I don't mean to portray the human condition any worse or more miserable than it is, as if that's even possible. Remember what Ecclesiastes said? Nothing new under the sun. Think about it, he says. As material beings were hemmed in by time, our happiest days are soon overtaken by our most miserable days. Time flows like a swift river, swallowing everything in its path, and no one can stop or control it. We say that time divides into three parts, past, present, and future, but the past has already disappeared. The future doesn't yet exist, and the present is so fleeting that as soon as you say the word, it has joined the past. In such a flimsy, half-nothing interval, 
we experience a few stray moments of happiness. I remember he's writing this on his deathbed, thinking he's going to die, and the church bells are ringing every time somebody dies. So he's hearing it. And if you consider time in relation to eternity, our history on earth appears as a tiny parenthesis in a volume that has no end. From that perspective, the most durable earth creature lives but a minute, and human life is a mere second compared to that of a tree or the sun. Of that sliver of eternity, how much offers an opportunity for satisfaction or pleasure? That's right out of Ecclesiastes. What people strive after, honors, awards, possessions, lose their luster over time. Today's celebrities will be forgotten by the next generation. As they advance in age, the highest achievers will lose the capacity even to remember their accomplishments and will leave all their possessions behind. Well, we just read this last week, didn't we? Youth is a time for ambition when honors and pleasures mean something. For the aged, they come too late, like medicine arriving after the church bell has already announced death, or a pardon granted after the beheading has already taken place. We rejoice in the warmth of a winter fire, but does anyone huddle before one at midsummer? Or are the pleasures of spring appropriate in autumn? If happiness depends on the season, if happiness depends on the season or the climate, how much happier are birds who can fly away to enjoy the same climate year-round? Trapped in time, we humans have no such luxury. It's one of his devotions. It's a message of Ecclesiastes. There is nothing in life that can give sustainable meaning to life. Nothing. Last week we looked at the problem of um, there's no fulfillment in this life. So you know what the solution is? Don't look for fulfillment. That's what he's going to argue. But let me qualify it a little bit because he's going to. There's no fulfillment in this life for those who don't have the Lord. And so this book gives us a glimpse into both how our neighbors view the world and how we as Christians view the world. You see, if God is at the center, uh, then we begin to find meaning, but it's not because of what's happening here. Now, I don't want you to be escapist, okay? Philo taught that, uh, that the answer is to, is to live through death, get through death, and then we'll see reality. And that escapist mentality has penetrated every religion, including Christianity, it's okay when we die because then we finally have good things, right? Well, what did Jesus say in John 10? I came that you might have life, have it abundantly right now. So the answer, we're not escapists. Our eternity for us has already begun. We're going to see that. It's already started. We're already enjoying it. So in order for us to find meaning and significance in life, in a world that is swirling around us in every direction, Centering it on the Lord allows us to make sense of what's happening here today. And that's what he's talking about. Otherwise, life is nothing. It's meaningless. Remember? Meaningless, the word hevel. It's a breath. 
Cain killed Abel. That was Abel's name, Hevel. Here today, gone tomorrow. But he goes further, Hevel, a breath. You're chasing after the wind. You're trying to grab something that you can never get. That's what's the message behind Ecclesiastes. So there's nothing in life that can give sustainable meaning to life apart from the Lord. That's the answer. So he's going to argue three points. Enjoy life because it's from the hand of God. God has ordained life's hardships, and finding meaning leads us to God. So let's look in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. That's it. That's what you get. Okay? But he goes on. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth, only to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. That's what it is. So here he makes a distinction between those who please God and the sinner, the one who does not know God. But who is the one who pleases God? So here's one of the places I want to jump to the New Testament. I want you to see how Paul argued in Ephesians. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other because they have apologized. Oh, wait, wait. Don't overlook this principle. The reason why you forgive people is because you have already been forgiven. Not because they repent. Most of them will never will. That's not the reason to forgive. You forgive because it lets you out of prison. It's for your benefit. So, forgiving each other just as Christ, as in Christ, God has already forgiven you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, that's right back to the tabernacle where we were just a month ago. The altar of incense burned continuously 24 hours a day, a fragrant aroma to remind God of his creation. Okay? But look what Paul does to this. If we jump to 2 Corinthians. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. You see, Christ was the initial, that sacrifice, that pleasing aroma. And guess what? We're a pleasing aroma as well to the Lord. He looks at you and goes, "Ah, you guys are so good. You guys are so great. And so who is it, and back to Ecclesiastes, that pleases God? Those who have faith. We talked for quite a while about Solomon. Solomon is a classic example of what it means to have all the wisdom in the world and no faith. Wisdom does not make you faithful. Wisdom is nothing compared to faith. Faith is far more significant than wisdom. We talked last week how wisdom and knowledge brings sorrow and exhaustion. It does, doesn't it? It tires you out. So the one who pleases God, this is the one who receives the blessing. Then in chapter 3, he's going to talking about God has ordained life's hardships. I'm not going to put these up there. There's too many verses. I'm just going to read them to you. 
Okay, so listen to this. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. Well, that's right out of Job. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. We see evidence of that in in God's own action in our fallen world in the Old Testament. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. You see, using these pairs, these antitheses, the opposites, he's explaining why God needs to be at the center of our worldview. You see the problem. That's what he's arguing, and it's true. We are in control of nothing. Good to remember. Last week we argued the only thing you have control over is yourself. That's it. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not circumstantial control. We are not in control of times, circumstances, and not only that, we don't even know when these times are going to occur. That is purely God's decision. Why? Why is that Why is that necessary in our world? I believe God placed these limitations on us on purpose, and we should see them as a gift, not as a frustration. Because if these limitations were not there, we would never search for God. So these calamities, these tests, these trials, that's why James says, count it all joy. We need to count as various trials. If these limitations were not placed in our lives, we would have no need to search for him. Last week I gave you the example of the very wealthy man. Uh, there's a lot of these people who have done this, but I love Jackie Chan's particular story. It's worth $130 million. He's leaving nothing to his children. He said it's not in their best interest. I'm giving it all away. I started with nothing, and so will they, and they'll learn the value of life. And I contrasted that last week with a very wealthy man who was being basically forced by his kids to leave it all to the kids. He said, we've told our kids, in our will, we're not going to make you rich. Not that we have that choice. Don't hear me wrong. (laughs) Our goal is not to make you rich. Our goal is to bless you. It's to bless you, but then we're going to use this money the Lord has given us if we're still some left to bless Christian ministry, Christian organizations. And so these things have been put in our lives specifically to stop us, slow us down, and force us to turn to him. When do people most often, deepest in their faith, turn back to God? When something tragic happens. They either want to move in one, two directions. Anger, futility, hopelessness, denial, or begin to seek God in a more true way. You see, God is a great parent. He knows what he's doing. My son called me 
a couple days ago. And um, his almost 18-year-old son, they had a big spat. So son went, grandson went to school, son went to work. So he calls me. He's telling me about it. Now, normally he would say, and I know what to do. I got it all worked out. Okay, fine. But he surprised me. He said, this really makes me unhappy. Those words are worth everything in the world. And I said, why is that? He goes, I don't know why. It just doesn't feel good. And I said, that's because you're living in a fallen world. Of course it doesn't feel good. And he said, well, I don't know what to do. And I said, what is it you want to do? And he goes, I just wish he wasn't at school. I wish he was back home today. Well, I said, texting is your son's love language. Send him a text and tell him that. Just tell him you love him. Tell him you're sorry. Tell him you wish he was there. Tell him whatever. That you're not comfortable with all of it. Tell him whatever you want to tell him. You'll connect again. And then he surprised me. He says, why is he like this? Now, my inside voice made it out at this point. And I said, why were you like that? And he said, well, you know, when I left home, you and mom wanted me to be gone. And I go, what are you talking about? I said, when you left home, he, he left the, uh, walked out in frustration and left and said, I'm done and I'm gone. I said, mom and I went in the back room and cried our eyes out for a half hour. He goes, you did? And I go, yeah, we didn't want you to leave home. We just wanted you different. And I said, and now that I'm an adult with a grown child and a grandson who's a teenager about to become an adult, um, if my dad were here, he would say the same thing about me. (laughs) In fact, it's true of all of you as well. And so, you see, as we went on, he said, but how do I think about this? I said, your son is a toddler. He goes, huh? And I said, think about what a toddler does. A toddler stands up and holds onto the couch, lets go, takes a step and falls. Gets back up, lets go, takes a step and falls. And after several times of that, he or she takes two or three steps and then falls. He's learning, he or she's learning how to walk. And I said, your son is a toddler. He's just an 18-year-old toddler. He's learning how to be an adult. He doesn't know when to push, when to make decisions, when to submit, when to listen, when to be confident, when to humble him. He doesn't know all that. He's learning it right now. And there's a lot of this between you. And that's why you as a parent are critical in this process. So if you have a spat, text him and just tell him you love him anyway. Or tell him that you feel bad about it. Whatever you want to tell him, reconnect. And you see, that's what this is talking about here, is that God, he he is letting us make mistakes. He's letting us be toddlers to learn what it means to trust him. You're never alone, okay? God never leaves you. When he's silent, that's just like a parent standing behind the corner, looking around, grinning at the toddler, tripping and falling, standing up, tripping and falling. That's when the toddler learns. The parent has to get out of the way so the toddler can learn. And so God steps back and says, okay, try it your way. Oh, didn't work, did it? Okay, Let's go back into the picture and let's try it again. You know, steps back, watches. I think he grins at every one of you. In fact, I think he laughs his head off watching us, trying to learn what it means to be faithful Christians. And the, and the author of Ecclesiastes here is talking about these very things, that God is the one that's in control of it, and we should see it as a gift, because if these limitations were not there, you know what? We would be in big trouble. If he gave us everything for our pleasure, we would never need to turn back to him. Ever. So it's the very trials in life that turn us back. It's these trials that force us to look for him. This is why 
Talk about in the New Testament. James argues that we're all subject to the will of God. James chapter 4. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You are a mist. See it? You're a mist. That's right out of Ecclesiastes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So the author of Ecclesiastes goes on and teaches us that finding meaning actually leads us to God. Verse 9, he poses a question. What do workers gain from their toil? Now look at that question for just a moment. He's not talking about profit, what he earned. He's talking about what is the real significance. Last week I read Tolstoy's, some of his confession, that the question that all of you are going to answer one day, the younger you are, you just need to be aware it's coming. Did my life make a difference? Does my life mean anything? Okay? That's the question he's raising. What do they gain from doing this? What does it look like? So he begins to answer that question in verse 10, verses 10 and 11. He says, I have, been, I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. We talked about that a couple weeks ago when we started this, that there is a great and heavy burden laid on us. It's because of our fallenness and our sin. This is a necessary act of love for God to intervene with this heavy work to force us, okay? But he goes on. He goes, he has made everything. Remember how he started chapter 3? There's a time for everything. He has made everything beautiful in its time. This is probably an allusion back to creation when the creation was good. He knows what to do with our fallenness. And he brings in calamity when it's the right time, when you need it, when it's appropriate to get your attention. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Okay? He put this eternity in here. So we have this innate, built-in thing by God that makes us long for something better than what we have. It keeps drawing us into the future. Okay, Again, not escapism, not to escape the past, but because we know that something that we're doing is supposed to have value. This relates to our understanding. So the eternity is there. We desire it. We hope for it. We long for it. We want to make sense of everything. But as he says, we can't fathom what God is doing. There's no way we can understand. This life is but a drop in the bucket. We want to understand the problem is we can't. That's why faith is critical. Because we can't. We occasionally have a glimpse of what God is doing, but not really. I've said over and over and over again, I can't wait to get to eternity and sit and see the see the uh, what was the result of us as a church that we don't know anything about, right? I walked into the post office yesterday to get a package. There's a guy standing off to the side, tattoos, pretty muscular, dreads. He goes, "Hey, pastor." I said, "Hey, how'd you know I was a pastor?" He says, "Oh, you've been here for several years. You're over at Dillon Community Church." He never would tell me why, how he knew. That's all he would say. And I want to know. I want to see those little trails of how the Spirit of God went to work. 
I can't see them. If I see only a glimpse, that's gold mine. I can't see them. That'll come in eternity. So if the bigger picture of life is inscrutable, then you know what? We're reduced, we're reduced to simple acceptance or faith. Look in verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That's the most we can get right now. Okay? That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is a gift from God. It's not all bleak. In the midst of a fallen world, he hands us gifts. Enjoy it is what he's saying. When you get that gift, enjoy it. Just don't place your faith in it. I know that everything that God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it. Why? So that people will fear him. I've talked a lot about idols the last few weeks. What are your idols? Let's say it a different way. Where do you find your identity? Where do you find it? Is your identity wrapped up in your career? Your success? Your wealth? You hear me every time we do an offering. I say, thanks for being generous. The truth is, and I point this out, I don't know if you're generous or not. That's between you and the Lord. You could have a billion dollars and give us a hundred and we feel great. We feel blessed and we are. But that doesn't make you generous. I say, thank you for being generous. It's a mind. It's a mindset. Okay? It's a mindset. Um... Um, I'll come back to that. So when you look at your wealth, okay, do you naturally think this way? I'm a steward. God owns everything. And he has given me this wealth for two reasons. One, to enjoy it. And the other one is to bless people. Or do you look at it this way? It's mine. That's called greed. Okay? God blesses you to bless others. So... You could be very greedy when you take the offering. Now, I don't know. That's up to you. If God convicts you you're greedy, just double your giving and we'll call it even. <laughs> so we're reduced to simple faith. This is why Paul can exhort us. Look at these two really uh, famous verses in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. This is Ecclesiastes. Enjoy what God gives and move on in life and be faithful. In every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will what? Guard. Guard your hearts and your minds. A little more money isn't going to make you any more at peace. Think of all the ways that we, we move out and we scatter. I'm all in favor of being careful with COVID. I had it, as you know. Be careful, but don't let that drive you. Think about the swirl all around us in culture. Satan's greatest distraction to pull us apart. Then he goes on in Philippians 4. I know... What it, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, 
whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Here is one of the fundamental weaknesses of the current philosophies that are being argued around the country. When the Lord says in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for this and a time for that, a time for this and a time for that. Earlier he said, I am the one who decides who is rich and I'm the one who decides who is poor. That's my choice. And so there is a fundamental theological flaw if everyone is to be equal, then we don't need each other. This is a fallen world. It's a fallen world. God raises up nations. He destroys them. He takes credit for that. He takes credit for the handicapped. When he responded to Moses in Exodus 3, I decide who is deaf, who is blind, who can speak. I make that decision. I decide who is rich and I decide who is poor. If we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves going against God. And Ecclesiastes has a strong message that um, we need to submit and be faithful. All that God is doing is designed to get us to fear him, to worship him and exalt him because we can never really understand it. That's what true faith is all about. You know, the world to look at is put one foot in front of the other. I look at it this way, one prayer at a time. That's how we live life, one prayer at a time. And there are many days when there's lots of prayers. <laughs> when I'm faced with all the things going on around me and in the church, people that are sick, people that are who knows what it is, it's one prayer at a time. It's how we live life, one prayer at a time. And that's what Ecclesiastes is teaching us. There's nothing sustainable There's nothing in life that gives sustainable meaning to life. But there is when you turn to the Lord and you make him the center. When he is the center, then we look at everything around us, including adversity, as a gift. Because that's God deepening your faith. If you never had adversity, you'd never need him. He just wouldn't. But you didn't think you'd find Ecclesiastes so helpful in today's world. So what's the answer? Fear God and keep his commandments. Walk by faith, one prayer at a time. Don't place your hope. Don't even seek for fulfillment. Seek the Lord. Father, thank you. Just thank you for your goodness. Thank you that even in spite of our brokenness and our sin, You have made the decision to love us and never give up on us. Thank you that you have made the decision to bring trials into our life so that we turn to you. We are so very grateful for that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you.